welcome to uh, Sheep Stuff You Should Know, the next episode. This is Ryan Mahoney coming to you from Amy Tower One. And today I'm joined with my good friend and longtime family neighbor, Mr. Duncan McCormick the Third. Correct. Duncan the Third. Welcome today, Duncan. Thank you. So, um, well, let's introduce yourself before we even get into other questions. Um, you want to want to tell us a little bit about kind of your family history, who you are, and how you ended up landing yourself here in Rio Vista? Yep, be happy to. Um, my name is Duncan McCormick III. Was born and raised here in Rio Vista. I'm 70 years old this year, and of course, spent my entire life here and around about. <clears throat> Excuse me, the Rio Vista community. Ranches uh, is our business, ranching and farming. We've had in the past ranches as far away as 30 miles in Dixon and even further down in Los Banos where we use winter feeding country for both sheep and cattle. Um, but our predominant area of operations is here in Rivista. And we started out here a number of generations ago with, I think, my great-granddad in about 1869 and started farming in the Montezuma Hills, ranching sheep mainly. And it's progressed over the generations to me now. Um, and I'm Duncan McCormick III. I have a son that's 46 years old who may or may not follow in my farming footsteps. We'll see, but he's, uh, he's been involved. He's got a son that's Duncan McCormick V. He's now about to be three years old, so we've got a couple of shots at seeing if this uh, operation continues. Yeah, well, I hear that the grandkids are always the best best option for the takeovers, if what I hear. So. All right. <laughs> we'll bet on that little fella. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. And, and so you're 18, 1869, and the Amy's, we were... We were 1870s out in the hills, but 1858 married at the Congregational Church. Oh my! Is when they the marriage certificate that I found is, and so you we've been here a long time. Yeah, yeah. And do you do you know from kind of your family history? Because I know our ours is kind of on the south side of town, and you guys were more north, right? Right, correct. And do you know how often back in those days, how often they would have come to town and kind of conversed, or do you think they stayed fairly separate? Curiously, it's a mixed message that I've gotten through the generations. The families, even as much as there were a portion of our family, McCormick's, that settled on the south side of, say, Rio Vista or Highway yeah. 12, and us settling on the north side, very little interaction yeah. between the families. And then, of course, Amy's, I'm sure if you trace our roots back enough, far enough, we're probably related. Yeah, I always like to joke I had to marry someone from out of town so I didn't accidentally marry a cousin. <laughs> I had to import my wife from down in that water. <laughs> that, that's, that's good advice. You did well. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I think the families got together, and it seems like, and I've had the benefit of being able to read a lot of di di uh, diary, yeah. day books that they kept, mostly the women, grandmother, great-grandmothers, and aunts, and they were very community-minded, the ladies were. They would constantly be doing something weekly for the church or for a sick and ailing family friend. 
and they're baking cakes and baking cookies, and they're always rallying, especially in the time of need where someone was sick. But as far as the men, and I've seen the diaries of the men in our family generations, they were all about business. I sold old Joe a sheep. I sold a dozen eggs to Mary Lou. But it was all business stuff, nothing about the community. I'll be darned. Do you, do you think that's because they just didn't write down the community stuff, or do you think they were betting on their wife's community service to get them a good egg sale to Mary Lou? I think that was it. Yeah. I'd take the latter. <laughs> yeah. I think the men, based on my understanding, and I, you could see the economics, they wrote down. They sold a cow for a dollar or a sheep for yeah. 50 cents. They yeah. were in charge of bringing the home the bacon. Yeah. And so they are dedicated, I'm sure six, if not seven days a week, to making a living on the farm or the ranch. Yeah. And this is all pre-depression, so pre-electricity, yep. pre-motor car, pre-everything. This isn't <laughs> Yep. This isn't cell phone 20th century, 21st century stuff. Huh? Nope. And my dad, who passed yeah. away in 2002 at the age of 72, he grew up in the early years. He was born in 1929. He grew up being disgusted by horses, and I could never figure that out, why he disliked horses so much. Until finally, as an adult, I asked him, Dad, what is this terrible anti-passion you have for horses? He said, well, as a youngster, he said, my dad would use the horses to pull the implements, till the soil, harvest the crop. And he said, we were, I was assigned as a youngster the task of feeding the horses in the evening after the workday, and then the next morning to go out before school with the pitchfork and pitch out of the stalls the same stuff that I'd fed them on one end the night before. And he said, it just disgusted me, these horrible horses. Yeah. Feeding them on one end and then scooping out the, uh, on the other end. Do, do you, uh, that's all right. We can cut out that ringtone. Um, do you know, do you know how many horses you had at one time or how many the ranch had back in those days? I'm betting over 20. Yeah. I never asked my grandpa that. I need to ask him because he was same. He was darn near the same age as your dad to the day. To the day. And uh, I'm pretty sure he did the same job. <laughs> and yeah. He's never liked horses either. No. So <laughs> I think you're probably right. But I mean, I've seen the pictures of the harvesters with like the 40 horse teams and stuff on yeah. them. Um, I, they had to have like leased them around and shared them a little bit too, I would think. I don't know. I never yeah. heard the real story on, did you own the horse? Did yeah. you train and raise the horse? Yeah. But they were certainly working horses. And then in my case of my grandfather, he was a horseman, and they he loved riding horses. I'll be darned. Uh, and it seemed like it just skipped generations. His son, my yeah. father, disliked him. I loved him. Yeah. My son, curiously, the one Duncan the Fourth, yeah, can't stand him. So it just like it goes through generations, <laughs> skips. Funny. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, so we've got a long history of. Being here, and then, of course, particularly funny or amusing to me is my dad, who lived long enough to see the horses pulling the implements, to buying a first brand new Caterpillar tractor to go out there and uh, till yeah. hundreds of acres as opposed to 
slaving over it for hours doing an acre or two a day with the horses. Yeah. My my grandpa always talks about the back in the he he says the best years farming was kind of eighteen eighty through nineteen thirty. And which is interesting because that's actually matches up with the transition to the motor engine and buying the implements and being able to farm more. But he says his quote has always been they would spend ten dollars and sell the crop for a hundred, but then once you started getting all of these other things, we'd spend ninety and get a hundred. I is it would it be a similar assessment in your history? I know north of twelve, the farm ground isn't as good, but true. Um, it was only capable of every other year production, yeah, at best. And it seemed like well, of course, with our combination of grazing and ra- racing sheep. And then we expanded into cattle, I'm going to say, in the 1960s um, and kind of ran them in combination. And that was kind of the best case scenario for the use of our resource, having a combination. And, of course, do I agree with your question or grandpa's, your, your granddad's response to when were the good years? I don't remember my dad or grandfather uh, talking so much about, oh my lord, did we have some good years back in the day? Yeah, I think we continued to, with my dad being the lead in my lifetime, expanding the operation, yeah. diversifying the operation. If we were able to save money after tax, we kind of dad had the idea that we should diversify a little bit out of yeah. agriculture, yeah, and into other possible ventures just to kind of keep a balance of yep. whatever number of families were going to be dependent, you kind of keep the money flowing. How, how big was your family? Um, family was very small. My mother was an only child. My dad was an only child. They had three kids, myself being the oldest and two younger sisters. Yeah. So um, the family in particular on both sides of my granddad grandparents but there, there's a difference right there my great-grandparents they had 10 kids each wow. both of them so they had a lot more free labor so those years would be a lot better no. <laughs> you might get some pictures with the kids harnessed up yeah i wouldn't be surprised <laughs> that's yeah, a great... little short horses but god we got plenty of kids uh, yeah 10 extra free hands that definitely makes it a lot better books yeah <laughs> yeah but anyway no it's rather small family um yeah. Even in the, you know, in the past generations. Yeah. That's interesting. Yep. Yeah. Um, what, what kind of, you talked a little bit about, well, first I got to tell you, so my, it's always been the story in my family that, uh, grandpa brought the first cows to the Hills in the eighties, but you had cows in the sixties. So I think we may, I think I might have to call the bluff on the stories I'm getting told here. You might have so, to, but I'll tell you, granddad might be right. Cause we brought uh, diversified into the cattle went out of the, in the ranch in Dixon. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we and that really, would be the same time he did too. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Cause they had the clover just North of you guys. Yep. Yeah. And then as, Oh, I guess flooding or something ran us out of the Dixon area in the wintertime. Yeah. That's when we started, well, let's see if we can, you know, run some cattle on the Rio Vista land. Yeah. And I remember the first few years and it happened to be torrential rains and we actually had cattle getting stuck (laughs) 
breaking through the crust of the topsoil, going down and miring to their bellies and having to go out and pull them out of, like you'd say, a quicksand situation. Yeah. Now, we haven't been blessed with those kind of rains in a number of years. So We had one day. One day we did. <laughs> yeah. Torrential. Yeah. Outside of the one day, we haven't seen it. No. <laughs> so so it's it, the weather, of course, as you know, and it's so unpredictable what we face. Yeah. And that's probably what's so enticing about this this enterprise and our business. You know, it's not like you're punching in at eight and punching out at five or nine yeah. to five, whatever it is. And that you're dealing with Mother Nature, who is always throwing a curveball. Yeah. So I guess you'd probably best define agriculturalists, farmers, ranchers as risk takers, but also uh, up for the challenge. Yeah. Let's see if we can figure it out. Whether you get too much rain or too little rain or right in the middle, you, you never get the same every year. And it's always a, a different solution to the problem. How how, how do you... Um this is kind of a little off the same subject as that, but I'm totally off of my question list here. But how, is, how do you prepare, you know, if somebody wants to get into agriculture, there's a lot of interest in, you know, people from the city wanting to retire and go get a farm. How do you mentally prepare for having to adapt with all of these unknowns, especially with livestock where you have you know, catastrophic health outbreaks or, um, we get incredible rain and you get grass tetany. And then over the course of three days, the tetany turns into bloat because, you know, we have these just unanticipated changes that result in problems and you really have to, you know, how do you mentally prepare for that? Or how do you stay positive through that? Good question. Um, because of the fact I've had the benefit of growing up with it since I was born. And I could hear as even a little fellow, you know, dad talking to mom about the challenges of the day or the yeah. year. And I guess he was the best teacher. Yeah. Uh, my granddad died before I was old enough to probably appreciate and realize what was going on. He died when I was a six year old, but anyway, dad's lessons through the challenges he faced and he never let it got, get to him terrible. I mean, you know, of course, we struggled financially. Certain catastrophic events, including flooding and yeah. losing sheep or losing an unharvested crop. He was able to kind of, I don't know, keep it all together. And uh, always innovatively thinking, how, how are we going to get out of this if we do lose? What are yeah. we going to do about it? And it was always, I don't know, at the time, it seemed like a horrible burden these mother nature challenges or health issue challenges, but all in all, it probably made for a better person Yeah, in me and being able to solve today's troubles since I kind of took over the outfit in my fifties after the loss of my dad yeah. and uh, to probably not let them get to you. And of course you got to have a pretty good bankroll behind you because otherwise you could become a statistic and go down the river. And you, you always got to kind of be, thinking of those worst case scenarios in almost whatever you do. I mean, we're coming out of a drought, but we have to plan for flood just in case, you know, you got to always have that and that having support financially behind you is part of that. Yes. Risk management. It all is. And it, it makes for an interesting life, yeah. but sometimes a difficult one. And I think it does need to bother you too. I mean, you can't just ignore a problem and pretend like no. it doesn't exist. You have to kind of see that problem get frustrated with it and then 
learn how to get past that frustration and move, take that next step. You know, what do you do now? All right. I got to learn from this. I can't just, I can't just get through it. I got to learn and keep going. Yep. And, yeah. and it's always good to have, and I, I know dad did this and his, you know, operations of the ranching and farming, uh, looking at all available options and yeah. thinking about it ahead of time. Yeah. Proactively. What do you want to call it? Preventatively. All right. If we get flooded, where are we going to go with the stock? Where are we going to go with the employees? Um, and now as we've kind of scaled the operation down to not having floodplain lands and more now we're completely subject to mother nature because yeah. it's native feed that we're grazing on and running the livestock. So if we don't get rain, uh, what do we do? And of course you look at the opportunities or not yeah. opportunities, the possible situations where does it come down to herd liquidation or reducing the size of the herds? Um, and that's a, that's a, been an option yeah. and been a serious thought process as we go through these, you know, unpredictable times of weather. Yeah. A lot of it too, is having a good network around you too. have good. I mean, you and I, um, we talked a lot, talk a lot. Uh, you've helped us out with feed, um, when we've needed it. Um, you know, and, and, um, you having that kind of community around each other really helps too. I mean, if it, you know, I, I, I know you and Paige are a great example of neighboring operations that have worked together to get themselves through those hard years together, mm -hmm. not leaving anybody behind. You know, the, the, the women back in the 1800s set the stage to make sure that that community stayed together. Yep. Like that's a huge part of being able to get through things is, is knowing you're not, you know, you're not by yourself in this one ranch drowning. Nope. You're with all of these people that are drowning. And if you, help each other out, you'll get through it. Yep. Yeah. Combine the resources and, and, yeah. and the folks in our particular Rivista community, including the ones you've mentioned, you and I and Paige and there's Hamilton's and it's a lot of cooperation goes on. Yeah. And people reach out to help one another and you may not be the, the same guy, friend that talks every week at the coffee shop, but once a year, somebody's in need, everybody helps. There's a rally. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a pretty neat part of our community and our industry. You think that's unique to us here or is that more a industry wide thing? I think it's industry wide. Uh, you know, I've had the benefit in having lots of friends in different areas out of States. Uh, and they, the communities are good there yeah. and they support one another. They're there to help in shipping and branding and, yeah. and it's a nice, it's a very nice deal. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them still compete, you know, who's going to get the best price for their bird. That's kind year? of the fun of it though. You can't, I mean, it's not, we don't live in a utopia. We live nope. in a community. Yep. And, yep. <laughs> Never know where it's and, going. And, and, and my sheep are way better than Richard's. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard somebody say that before. <laughs> it might've been you. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, that's good. But yeah, I mean, and that's a, the other thing I think that's, that a lot of these small communities have is, uh, we talk about Richard, but like Pep Hamilton, his dad was best friends with your dad, who was best friends with my granddad. And, you know, these, to have these generations go back so far, and it's just, and it's such a good competitive, healthy relationship, friendship yep. that, you know, and yeah, it's pretty impressive. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So what's, what, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you, you're, you're, you, you, I've always loved, 
talking to you about some of the fun things you did um, growing up. But what's one of the one of your best memories, or I don't know what you want to call it, best memories of growing up on the ranch? Is something you did that if you did it today, you'd probably be thrown in jail. All right, <laughs> I, I've got one. Yeah, probably one of the greatest accomplishments, and I don't remember exactly how many years old. And I do understand that John has the ability to edit this. <laughs> so, well, back in the day when I was probably an eight to 10 year old and great friends with Paige Baldwin right across the street, we would constantly play after school. But first it meant doing our chores, which yeah. we did have assignments. I did. And then I drag him in and he'd be my assistant, <laughs> yeah. whether it's gathering eggs or whatever it's doing, but we'd work in conjunction with my grandmother would hire a local choreman, and a lot of times they were homeless fellows that were on the train that would jump off somewhere and need a little job for a week or two. So she would constantly hire these folks, kind of more helping them than hiring them. But anyway, this one particular fellow that they hired was a mean, gruff old fella. He was just horrible, especially little kids about my age. And so after all these weeks or days of gruffness and I'd call it sour behavior, sour, mad, and raising heck and scolding us, we decided we needed to pay this fellow back. So Paige and I decided the thing to do would be to really just get him good. We'd eat a little bag of Fritos as a snack after school. But so we got up on top of this barn and we both urinated into this Frito sack. And when the choreman came to do his chores in the barn, we dump the urine all over his head. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> that's that sounds like something out of the mind of a 10, 11 year old kid. Like we weren't gonna get caught. We're on top of the roof of the small barn. Yeah. And we just soaked him in urine. Anyway, of course he looked up and we hid. Yeah. On the roof. Yeah, and then he find you? Oh, yeah, he found us. Yeah. What was that? <laughs> was oh, he... it's just water. <laughs> oh, man. How long did he end up working for you? He was gone the next day. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> he got fired, he quit. Oh, man. That's funny. <laughs> no, back to the truth. Uh, that was a true story, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, as a little kid, an accomplishment or something that's, that's outstanding uh, boy, that's a good one. There, you know, a number of little accomplishments. Um, I'm probably going to have to pass on that because there's too many to. I don't know yeah. where to go with that. What about like a what about like a lesson or or experience that you had growing up that uh, most people today won't be able to get that kind of sets apart being raised on that ranch from being raised in the city or you know even like. Rio Vista today isn't the rural community it was, you know, 60 years ago. Um, but, you know, some of those, I, I don't know how exactly to say, but you talk about going home after school and having to do your chores. But those chores weren't cleaning your room or putting the dishes away. Those chores were outside work, outside work, dealing with livestock, dealing with the situations. I mean, that, you know, what about something like that, that it kind of sets apart that your upbringing versus, say, somebody in today's world yeah it was like on the weekends for example i remember and of course a lot of the city kids friends of mine would come out or we didn't if i i'd invite them out and it usually involved instead of playing football or doing something 
we were assigned the task of moving sheep four or five miles up the road, McCormick Road or Flannery, yeah. one of the local roads, going field to field. Well, I'd invite three or four little buddies and had a sheep dog, and we'd move the sheep by foot. <laughs> and we were on our own. We were little kids. And Dad would guess, I guess, and pick us up at the end of the drive. And we'd all scramble, and everybody had a ball. Yeah. Well, that wouldn't happen today, you yeah. know, in today's world, unless you were <laughs> isolated to the ranch and that attraction yeah. to get the friends out. I, I think I maybe could talk my wife into letting Connor do that, but I don't think I could talk any of his friends' parents into letting them come out <laughs> just by themselves. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to leave him right here, and I'm going to pick him up four miles in three hours. <laughs> nope, it wouldn't happen today, no. and it wouldn't be safe today, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, I mean, with the cars and traffic and everything. Yeah. 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 So those fun experiences, and of course, we all, had, myself and my two sisters, had little projects, 4-H projects, where we raised our own lambs or had a purebred string, and I'd work with them a lot um, in the off time, free time. And, of course, my buddies from town would yeah. come out, and instead of, you know, spending the time playing a baseball game or shooting hoops, we'd trim sheep, getting yeah. ready for the Dixon Mayfair. I heard, I heard, actually, you got a lot of your show stock just right out of that commercial herd couple days uh, before the fair. Sometimes that did happen. <laughs> if the fancy purebred lamb didn't make weight, well. You should have you should have won showmanship trying to show one of those wild boogers. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's why I think they started the ear tagging process. Oh, so yeah, yeah. That <laughs> was your fault. can't do that anymore. <laughs> All started with Duncan McCormick at the Dixon Mayfair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was a few times where the the tail heads were like ten inches long. I said, yeah. "My God, they did they didn't dock that lamb properly to be a show lamb." Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, on to the sheep. Uh, sheep have a special relationship to the hills here, and your family is is the same and shares in that. How? What? What? Um, I don't know. You want to talk a little bit about the history and sheep and your and your family operation? And yes, it, it, the sheep have always been kind of the predominant um, resource for our income and our purposes. Uh, we had diversification, as I told you, some row cropping, and then later expanded into cattle. But a beginning of my early years was sheep, predominantly the that was the that was our focus. So we'd spend a lot of uh, holiday season days, Thanksgiving, Christmas Day. We'd get up with dad, my sisters and myself, go out and we'd feed the sheep as they needed feeding every day during that lambing period. So lots of fun times at Christmas uh, feeding sheep. And then we'd go home and celebrate and open the packages and have the family meals. But a good part was uh, those holiday early years spent within the sheep, working with them. And, and I think as uh, time went on, my dad had a particular love and passion for sheep. And I remember him telling me here, not, well, but shortly before his passing in 2002, he made me promise, and I don't know why, because he knew I liked sheep, but maybe didn't have the passion that he thought I should have. He said, you got to promise me something, Duncan. And I said, okay, Dad, what? And he goes, you got to promise me you'll never get rid of the sheep. You've got to keep the sheep. You got to remember that that's the backbone of our family. That's how we all got educated, went to school. 
we depended on the sheep. So when and if, and I'm going to know I'm going to be gone, you got to promise me, do not get rid of those sheep. And of course I had to be smart about it and qualify it. And I said, well, yeah, dad, I promise you, but I need to know, do I have to keep 5,000 sheep or can I just keep a few? And he goes, oh, you know what I mean. So I have continued to honor the promise that I agreed to. Yeah. And I will never get rid of the sheep. Yep. Um, we still enjoy them. I still enjoy raising them. Um, we don't do it as much as we did back in the day, but uh, they're still a good complement to our outfit. You know, it, it's funny. And yeah. a lot of times in, you know, whatever company that's outside of our industry, yeah, a wedding, uh, somebody's graduation, and invariably, I won't know the people well. And, oh, what do you do? Well, I'm a sheep rancher. Yeah. I'm not just a sheep rancher. I got, you know, a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah. But I introduced myself as, what do you do? I raise sheep. Yeah, I got a ranch, raise sheep. Yeah. Sheep and cattle, not cattle and sheep. And I, I got to tell you this one quick story. And this may be where I probably came to the realization that I'd gone over the edge and I was going to be a sheep man. <laughs> so uh, this is back in, I don't know, maybe it was in the probably mid-70s. My dad and his good friend, Gail Glenn, who was a sheep trader, you know, a trade man, he's a commission man. Wild son of a gun. Anyway, Gail Glenn and my dad came up with this scheme that they were going to capture the butcher you market. And the, and they, the way they were going to do that was they were going to buy all of the 11 Western states, everybody's call use. And we were going to bring them to our bypass ranch in California. Yep. 12, 14, 15,000 head, all culls. Bring them out there in the fall, shear them, get the wool. And then turn them out on the clover and put some pounds on them and be in command of the supply for the butcher you market. Yep. Okay. Great plan in action. Fantastic plan. All these, <laughs> god dang, the worst looking skeletons of sheep and boil infested, just garbage. Comes off these trucks from Wyoming, mm-hmm. Colorado. So we shear them. Well, what happens that year, early winter? <laughs> <laughs> Rain, man. The rains come. We're 16 feeding... hours after you shear. Oh, yeah. It was horrible. <laughs> they were piling up in the corners. We just shorn them. I'm oh, out there all night long geez. with a dog trying to keep them from smothering. And it's and it's only six months wool. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, we're feeding on an island at Little oh, Holland. God. Little Holland. Yeah. We got three or 4,000 ewes over there. Well, it's going to be flood stage. Yeah. So dad says, get those ewes, go get those ewes off the island, get them across the dirt bridge before the flood comes in. Yeah. So myself and half a dozen or three Mexicans jump on horses, take off to go get these sheep off a of little holland. Yeah. Your dad didn't take a horse. No, he didn't. No, no. no. He didn't go. <laughs> yeah. So we're out there. And most all the sheep, we gather them out of the bushes. This is like, I don't know, 1700 acre island surrounded by just a bunch of willows and blackberries and yeah. it's kind of wild so out in the middle of this big 1700 acre is a low spot and there's about 12 14 ewes freshly shorn just like quicksand down to their bellies yeah and so i think oh, damn, poor sheep you can see them out there i say i gotta save them so i go out there with a rope can't go a horse yeah. the horse is going to get stuck I go out there and start roping them, pulling them back out, throwing them up, roping them and pulling them out. Pretty soon, I'm all down to two or three left, and I'm stuck. And I can't get out. 
Yeah. And I don't know if there was a Mexican around there or somebody. I finally had to scream for help. The horse is tied up in the tulis. And I'm thinking, holy shit, I'm stuck in the mud with two or three call youths that I've got left to pull out. I've just risked my life to save that 25 cent you. You know, and I'm thinking, you goddamn idiot, Duncan. <laughs> and I'm realizing, oh, my God, would I do it again? Sure, I would. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sure, I would. Yeah. That's yeah. nuts. Yeah. It's true, though. Yeah, it's true. Oh, man. What, what? <clears throat> What happened to the sheep industry over the last 50 years? I mean, it, it's gone from, I mean, literally financed hundreds of, if not thousands of operations for the first half of the 19th, 1900s. And then it's gone now to where we've seen this collapse and, and it's still valuable to us. And I know it's still valuable to you guys, but it's not the primary driver that it used to be. Um, what do you think, or what would you kind of chalk up as some of the reasons why it collapsed or I don't want to use the word collapse, but gone down. I, I know what you mean. And I, I've, I've seen it in my lifetime. I think a lot of it started with the bringing in outside imported product to compete here, which didn't make for an equitable playing field because I'm going to call it doesn't matter if it's Australia or New Zealand outside lamb would come to the States it was at a different price range and structure yeah, and it didn't compete because it was cheaper than our American home raised lamb that started, I think the problem. Then a lot of the laws against how you raise the sheep, whether it be how you control predators, it used to be the North coast of California was a huge sheep producers area and the predators and the lack of predator control in legal means mm -hmm. to, you know, kill the predators before they killed your sheep. When they took those tools away and the imported products still coming in, it just discouraged the ranchers. And then of course the younger generations of those sheep ranchers saw the amount of hard work and labor and toil that their fathers and grandfathers had you know, contributed to the sheep operation. And then the sheep market being more like the, I'm going to say a yo-yo. Mm -hmm. It could be certain times of the year if it happened to be your product was ripe and ready and you happened to be at the peak of a price swing, it made it okay. You did good. But many times it would be fall out of bed and it'd be way below production costs, in which case the producer's not doing good. He's struggling. Yeah. And I think the youth, the next generation saw this, the hard labor and toil, because sheep are more dependent than other types of animals, to have help, need help lambing, need help getting stuck in a mud hole, need help getting off the road instead of getting run over. I mean, they just yeah. are needy. Yeah. And the, the kids, the younger generation, seeing that, well, my gosh, here, dad's out, granddad's out there toiling over this. He's selling at a low. He's losing money. The bank's putting pressure on him. Why on earth are we going to go into this profession, go out there, build fence, trim sheep's feet, uh, work all through Christmas holiday, dragging in baby lambs, and the rewards um, weren't as high as the downside risk. 
So I think that happened to discourage yeah. a number of youngsters, and uh, they chose an easier path. Why? Why is there such from the guys that do it? Why is there so much love for the sheep industry? Like I talk to other people in other commodities, and I mean you'll you'll see beef guys that are all beef, but I I've almost never come across a commodity group like the sheep industry that is when you get when you get someone to dump the sweat equity into that animal there's just there's a passion there for that industry that i have never seen anywhere else mm-hmm. what what where's that from <laughs> like why why i i probably have to say it comes from the heart that yeah. these producers are so loyal and true yeah to their animal in this case sheep yeah. And that the sheep is so dependent on that person, that person, the sheep rancher, knows it, and you're not going to drop the ball and yeah. let that sheep down. And there's yeah. a certain commitment there, whether it be like an analogy of husband and wife. You know, yeah. if the wife gets sick, the husband's there to help her through it, and vice versa. I think there's a symbiotic relationship between the yeah. sheep rancher and his flock. Yeah, that's that's really well said. I, it's fun, you know, just kind of on that because I, I know so many guys, like especially go down the valley, a lot of the the Basque operations down there, and even you go Ryan Endart has sheep and almonds, and these guys have sheep and citrus. These guys have sheep and alfalfa. These have sheep and a dairy. These have sheep and this, but the sheep. Are always listed first, <laughs> but I think you're I think you're onto something there. That's really, yeah, that's really well said. That's 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 neat. Yeah, that's my take, and it, it it's it's a fun deal. I mean, you know, it's a lot of work. I'm glad we have the sheep. Yeah, uh, we don't have so many that it's a burden. We can do it casually with our limited employee and my ability to go out and help. Yeah, do the things that I'm still able to do. And the marketplace is, of course, it's never been very dependable for us in the last 20 years. Yeah. And you're in it more so than I, Ryan. But um, you just never know. Uh, and we only have one outlet Yeah. for a commercial size truckload or two. Yeah. Um, and if you don't like what the offering is that week, you don't really too have bad. a choice. Come pick up the dead carcass and take it to Denver or somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. What do you do? with a truckload of yeah meat carcasses when you don't like the price that the local outfits offering yep yeah so for that reason it it kind of limits our ability to have a free market i think on the west coast yeah you know if there was three competitor two competitors and they could play off of one another just like in an auction scenario yeah where i'll give you a dime i'll give you 11 cents a pound or oh, no i'll give you 11 and a half at least you will walk away with a satisfaction knowing you've extracted best you can what a fair market price is today because Joe offered me 11 cents and Pete offered me a 11 and a quarter. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I think, yes, I agree. I'm all, I'm also fairly optimistic because in the last couple of years, we've seen the, we've seen the rise of kind of some non-traditional markets step into the commercial space and kind of it kind of either directly or indirectly 
shorten the supply, which raises the price. And mm-hmm. that's, I, that's been really encouraging the last couple of years. I mean, how that all plays out, who knows? It's a pretty, I'm glad I don't operate at that Packer segment level because that's a whole nother ball game. But, uh, but yes, I, I agree. It, you need that competition in order to get good price discovery. And, yep. and I think if you look at the beef cattle prices over the last two years, you've seen some issues where they've been able to hold it down due to lack of competition. Whereas the sheep got so short on supply, they weren't able to hold it down. But, um, so, uh, what, what, uh, what do you think of the future of the sheep industry is? I think it's going to continue to struggle. Um, I think little farm flocks are building up. Mm-hmm. It seems like what I read um, and that we're here about. The small farm flock is a very popular thing. And I think maybe a long time ago, that's how maybe the industry started. Everybody had a few sheep, you know, 30, 40, 20 yep. backyard bunches. And then, of course, some of those expanded into, you know, bigger, larger commercial outfits. Um, the future of it, I think the small backyard farm flock is coming back. Yep. Um, the big commercial herds, I think, facing horrible challenges. Yeah with labor shortage, labor regulation help. How do you get, um, out of country help? Yeah. Um, that's qualified. Dependable immigration. Just, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then the, the fact of, I heard just reading about the, the sheep herder salaries going yep. into the overtime, double time, triple time yeah, holidays off. And the, the sheep guys I know are at, at a marginal, um, Barely, barely, you know, yep. break even, make a little. If you talk about doubling an input like labor, yeah, I just basically I don't know if, how they can handle it. Yeah, and it's not an industry that can be mechanized. And it has doubled over the last ten years, fifteen years already, and so you're doubling the double. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's pretty pretty tough. Yeah, and and, and the government lands, whether it be a. Yeah, the anti-grazers don't want them in the forest, and they don't want them on the desert, and they don't want them in state lands. Yeah, it's making very difficult for the mountain states' operations. Yeah, to continue operating when they face all these new regulations about what they think are the benefits of yeah good things for the environment and the forest and and predation. Yep, definitely, definitely high on the list because um, if you raise if you raise taxes from ten to 30% people get mad if you yep. raise if you raise your predation losses from 5 to 20% it's the same thing look out yep so, yeah yeah and then not have the legal means to do something about it um yeah. that would be terribly discouraging and i can only yeah. read stories about some of the predation that's going on with the wolves and the yeah and the mountain lions the new things that have been introduced and or expanded their ranges yeah and uh it, it's just it's it's a You'd shed a tear over it, tell you the truth. Yeah. So then, after all that positive outlook, uh, what would you tell a new guy jumping into this show? You young and want to get started, and you got that bug for the sheep. First, How do you... first tool you need to get in the arsenal is an AR-15 with a at least a 30-shot <laughs> clip. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Before you ever buy a sheep or a sheep hook, yeah. get the gun. Yeah. <laughs> and make sure you know how to use it. <laughs> yes. Yes. and then go borrow the money to buy the sheep then borrow the money to buy the sheep how how important it is to have a good banking relationship 
um, it, it's important to have a relationship with the bank if you need them. Yep. And most people do, especially, you know, in the beginning years of starting up an outfit short of being blessed with a few million dollars, you'd certainly need somebody in a working relationship from a bank resource. Yeah. And that is important. And then the most important thing, if you do go that route is to have an absolute complete open and honest dialogue with that banker. Yeah. Um, if they know the ins and outs of your operation, how you're deciding issues and things, it'll be so much more helpful. And then unfortunately, in the banking industry, what I've seen over the course of my lifetime, bankers, and you get a relationship with a one or two man team or ladies, and then they are constantly climbing the ladder and getting moved to different locations. And you're constantly introducing yourself to a new banker. Yeah. It's a very difficult breaking in period, I would say, for the person borrowing the money to have to be constantly training the new banker. Yeah. That's a struggle, but you can be prepared for it. And most of them are workable. And as long as they know what you're doing, what you're up to, yeah, it's a great resource to have a good relationship with. I know we, we, I mean, we have a good relationship now with our bank, but it's, we definitely have run into that changing bankers and whatever you call it, re-educating or teaching them what you're doing because ag operations are so complex, especially when you add uh, multiple crops and uh, multiple, like with livestock, you go from feeder lambs to selling feed on the gain to cutting a hay crop one year to feeding it off the next year to buying in feeder lambs to buying in stalker cattle. I mean, in the cash flows and the moves back and forth. And then to the bank needs to have confidence in your ability to make those decisions. And then because you have to be able to have a situation where it's flexible enough for you to adapt to market changes. Cause if you do a year budget that just like you're saying that yo-yo, if lamb, if lamb prices change, you need to have the support to go from, instead of buying these feeder lambs, I said I was going to buy in my January one budget in August. Now I'm going to buy feeder cattle because the risk is way less or, you know, opportunities more, whatever it is, you need to have that relationship where you're able to do it. Yep. So yeah, that, that, that is ever so helpful. Yeah. And we, we did personally struggle for not struggle, but it was constantly a task part of the daily chores yeah. were to refine the numbers. And of course, curiously in my young adult stagehood, um, my job was to work on those issues with the bank and the budgets. Yeah. And, but they were always like, like you said, so flexible. You, it might not happen this month. It might be six months forestalled. Yeah. And, uh, it, the working relationship. And then once, of course, we were luckily able to, uh, break away from our dependency on the banking institutions, like in the late nineties, it, it was a lot more comfortable life when we could self-finance. Yeah. And we didn't, we weren't dependent on anybody to have to make this, this glove fit. If, if you're going to go the self-financing route, how do you need to, um, pretend you're a bank and, and loan line of credit money to your op, you know, kind of separate, create a banking entity within your entity in order to be honest, or should you just go off a of cash? I'm this is just question. Yeah. 
to be honest, the best scenario would be to just consider yourself a bank and you'd have to say, well, charge the normal interest rate. Yeah. And the entity, assuming it's a big enough deal that you can do that. Yeah. Um, that would be the ideal way. Yeah. To properly account for, or is this operation that's be, being financed, even though it's self-financed, is it carrying itself? Yeah, is it? And we're making our debt and debt payments and interest payment, even though yeah. it may be a discounted rate. Yeah. To be an arm's length transaction, it would be better yeah. to account for it properly, like you suggested. Now, did we do that? No. It's hard to do all it's, that and keep hard, it straight. It is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And now I've simplified things in our own personal operation. I say, I guess it's simplified. It's, <laughs> it's complicatedly simple. If I explained simple. it to you, it, you <laughs> probably wouldn't say this is simplified. Oh, our stuff's easy too. But to me, I've got it up, you know, here so yeah. far. I'm sure one day I'll start losing it. Yeah. But it, it, boy, it works. I yeah. mean, it works like a, yeah, like a smooth paved highway. Yep. And I'm proud of that accomplishment, and I think I've gotten it done. At least it satisfied me. Yeah, that's awesome. My kids might think I'm nuts, but. Yeah. Well, but that's all fun. right. You got to keep them guessing so they yeah, stay Yeah, they sharp, never know. Right? Yeah. Well, all right. Well, I think we're running up about out of time, but uh, I really appreciate the time today. It's always good to catch up, and, and uh, yeah, this is fun. Well, uh, thank you for having me on my first ever podcast. Yes, you're now a radio sensation, thank Duncan you McCormick. For, yeah, defining for me what a podcast actually is. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like I've had a learning experience out of this. I'm always trying to add listeners, so yeah. now I can put one more in the yeah, tally. I'm going to be on it. <laughs> All right, Duncan. Thank you, Ryan. Well, good thank to be you. With you. Take care, and we'll see you later. Signing off. Oh.